you know, it's kind of counterintuitive for everyone to try to beat each other on price when it, when things are already so dire already, you know, like how much everyone is paying for rent, for staff, for, for ingredients and all the other miscellaneous things that people don't see when they eat at a restaurant. So, you know, and, and so we kind of went the reverse. We're like, fuck this, we're not gonna go, we're not gonna go cheaper. We're gonna go really expensive and we're gonna use really fucking great stuff. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Some people are born for hospitality. Growing up in family-run restaurants, living and breathing the day-to-day operations can have a lasting impact on those continuing in their parents' footsteps. Many restaurants in Australia are intergenerational, family-run venues over many decades and have become the foundation of the culinary landscape we know and love. After the toughest year the industry has ever faced, what impact will this have on these iconic family-run venues? Pelissa Anderson is a second-generation restaurateur of Chat Thai Boon Cafe and a first-generation farmer of Boon Luck Farm. Pelissa, I couldn't list all of the venues you have, but you've got a, an amazing stable there in the family. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, they keep expanding and contracting with the times, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like growing up in a, a family that ran, you know, one of the most influential uh, restaurants uh, in Australia? What was it like as a kid growing up in that environment? Uh, well, I guess I didn't know any better, so I, it was just normal for me, you know, to to be working on the weekends alongside my mother, um, learning how to, you know, be a dishy at the age of nine. <laughs> um, so like all the other kind of things that you just mentioned, like, you know, being influential, I don't think we never thought of ourselves like that. You know, we were just immigrants making do, really. You you uh, left the industry. You've not always worked in it and um, studied uh, international studies and sports biomechanics. Um can you tell us about that period of time? Because there was a big gap where you weren't in restaurants. It's funny, right? So even though I wasn't, I kind of still was because I, despite kind of trying to escape and, um, you know, living in three different continents and trying to have other careers, my mother would just kind of niggling kind of thing about draw, being able to draw me back in even though I kind of wanted to just keep my distance really because I, I grew up and it was, literally it was a family business. You know, my mother was on the stoves. We were running around filling in when there was no staff, you know, you know, the curry hand took the night off or was sick. We'd be jumping in there or doing the entrees or, or, you know, serving on the floor. I remember, learning how to run the floor at the age of about 10, 11, um, you know, having juggling 12 tables um, and all pretty much all on my own, you know, and, and running back and forth, taking telephone calls and orders and things like that. You know, back then there were no <laughs> apps to do any of this. So it was all very much manual. Um, even though I left, I was still doing projects on the side for my mother, like being in contact with suppliers, um, 
interpreting documents and files and writing menus for her. So in a way, I don't think you could ever leave a family business. Um, yeah, and in the meantime, you know, my brother was, he was studying to become an architect and his first project at the time while I was away was refitting out our Haymarket, our first, uh, well, kind of our first restaurant in the city. Um, and that was his uni project. <laughs> so we could never really escape the clutches of my mother. But, um, and it was great because there was a sense of ownership over it because we were just so involved in every aspect. Uh, the restaurants are renowned for really low profit margins and really hands-on taking uh, a lot of hours to operate. What sort of insights did you get as a, as a young kid uh, in, that you took forward in running restaurants as you got older? Well, see, the thing is I didn't understand um, how restaurants worked otherwise, to be honest. Um, and for a long time, and to some extent still, we kind of run like a mom and pop shop. Um, and you're right, you know, low margins, high turnover. And in order for a high turnover, obviously, you know, you're paying rent on a venue anyways. It just it makes sense to stay open as long as you could, provided you could find staff. Um, and staff was has always been, you know, the, the most intriguing part of <laughs> any business, I think. Um, so, yeah, that was just how my mum did it, and so that's how we continue to do it. However, there are a few processes that we've refined along the way. You said that you mentioned that you never really left the family business, but um, you did start a career in Hong Kong and London and New York and Tokyo, but... What, what drew you to come back to be full-time in the family business? Well, I think when you have a family, um, many things changes. You know, like I really wanted my mother to be close to my children. Um, and so we came back and we bought a duplex and we kind of quickly outfitted her with the downstairs apartment and she came and lived with us. Um, and in the meantime, I think the GFC happened and that was a, a big decider as well because while and you know other disastrous events happened we were living in Japan at the time um, and the tsunami was a big kind of instigator for us to leave all the time I'd lived there obviously there'd been quite a few little earthquakes but that one was the big shocker so we came with um, our, well we had our second child in Australia and in that kind of three months of me having my second child back in Australia, we just thought we'd stay because it seemed like a really good place to raise children. It's funny because I grew up in Mossman. And I can, we can talk a little bit about that. <laughs> we were the first Asians, pretty much the first Asian kids <laughs> in our neighbourhood. And, you know, my mother being a, the flamboyant restaurateur that she was, used to bring us all sorts of really interesting things for lunch which we were, you know, gawked and gaped at. Um, but funnily enough, when we moved back, we guess where we moved? Back into Vanilla Town, which is fantastic for raising children. <laughs> it's safe is the tagline. <laughs> 
since you've since you've been back, it's the the family business has really been transformed to not just be about restaurants. There's there's so many elements to it, and a real connection to produce with Boon Luck Farm and the grocery that you have as well. And can you, can you tell us about uh, the decision to go down that path, and what, where did that start? Well, actually, it did it did start pretty much from the time um, I returned back to Australia because in that time. I was more and more interested in um, health and where our food sources were coming from. Going to visit, um, going to visit farmers with my mother really made a huge impact on me. Like she, she'd always done that to an extent. You know, we'd buy from around the farms in the Greater Sydney region, and because we wanted to not just cook Thai Chinese food. And we really wanted to get into the more kind of heavier aromats and spices, which don't grow very well around the greater Sydney region. We had to kind of source further afield up north. Um, so in going to farms all around far north Queensland, in going up to you know Darwin and the Northern Territory, um, we, f- we just saw how close it really was to resembling what we could access from Thailand, in Thailand. You know, we weren't importing a lot of stuff at that stage even, but we were just cooking to suit what was available already here. And uh, for my mother who, you know, being part of a quite a large Thai diaspora here in Sydney, she just wanted to cook food that she was missing from home. You know, that whole idea of nostalgia really kind of, and that actually carried the the essence of the menu more than actually um, margins or anything or making money, to be honest, because for my mother, you know, her restaurants were, it's, it was her lifestyle. And, and now I totally understand that because when people say, oh, don't you, you work on Sundays? I said, yeah, we work every day. <laughs> I don't remember ever having said, you work on Christmas Day? Yes, of course we work Christmas Day. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't ever think I'm, I'm living for my next holiday, which I felt when I, when I was working um, in corporate. And I always thought, yeah, people who work in offices in, 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 in fields that are not hands-on and creative, they do – that's how they live. They live for their next holiday. And I don't, you know, I never really understood that because if you're not enjoying what you're doing day to day, like why are, why are you doing it? Um, but, you know, in hospo, people, you know, as much as we grumble about being tired and it's a very unhealthy lifestyle and whatnot, it's just the excitement of it, I think, that keeps people in. Um, on the flip side, I really wanted to turn that around and actually make it healthier. And so the food seemed an obvious place to start. Australia's culinary landscape is so rich and beautiful because of the waves of migration from so many countries that brought their cuisine here. Uh, but there's always been challenges in uh, delivering that to a Western-style market and and sometimes, um, you know, doing dishes that aren't perhaps as traditional or that the, that society might accept easier. Has there been challenges with that? Uh, for your restaurants over the last couple of generations? Oh, yes. 
<laughs> I think when you ask that question, it's a more of a statement, isn't it? <laughs> Look, I, I, um, I'm not going to – actually, yes, I'm going to call you out. <laughs> I think – do you remember – I'm not sure if you remember a couple of years ago. Um, I'm not sure. Did I write you an email about the whole notion of cheap eats? Because all our, all our restaurant life – We've always been put on the cheap eats list. And look, to be honest, in the beginning, my mother was just pleased as punch to be on any list. And, um, and you know, to get any kind of recognition in, you know, in a very pretty much a white Australia, because we knew that recognition was sidelined to that portion of our customers. But... The customers that we were getting were very much ethnic. You know, we were we were accommodating the Thai diaspora here, and then by them coming, we got the Chinese, the Malays, the Singaporeans. Because Thai food is really um, it's a cross cultural food as well. When you talk about as Australian food being a cultural cross cultural dining kind of place, it. it you know, when you go to a place like Thailand and you pick out certain regions and you think, ah, so we, all my understanding about Thai food is completely null and void. Um, and that's been kind of even more apparent recently when I've been watching Flavor Origins because all these things that any nation claims to be of their nation and it's like the pride that they have around that this is their regional food and then you go somewhere and they eat something really similar and you go fuck actually it's my myth is completely dispelled because all these all this time i thought this was just particular to here well it kind of isn't (laughs) because someone somewhere has done it already too you're right there's uh, been a real changing well there needs to be a change in the food media side of, side of thing and the perception of certain types of restaurants in this country. Has that been challenging, um, having a Thai restaurant uh, and and trying to deliver what you want in this market? Yeah, well, again, it's all so much is about of it about it. This is all about the price point and what people expect to pay for a Thai dish versus an Italian one or a whatever. Um, and part of it is because, you know, it's a stereotype that has, and, and which we're kind of guilty of as well. You know, here we are having meetings, um, our staff meetings are about how to draw back more of our Thai diners who have this perception that we are actually expensive. It's all about perspective, right? Um, because we're in an area in, in Haymarket, one of our kind of main restaurants is in Haymarket where there's so many other Thai restaurants trying to price, like beat us on price point. There's, and quality wise, I don't know because I don't eat at them, but I know our processes and I know, you know, what it costs to produce something like this. So it makes, um, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive for everyone to try to beat each other on price when it, when things are already so dire already, you know, like how much everyone is paying for rent, for staff, for, for ingredients and all the other miscellaneous things that people don't see when they eat at a restaurant. So 
you know, and, and so we kind of went the reverse. We're like, fuck this. We're not going to go, we're not going to go cheaper. We're going to go really expensive and we're going to use really fucking great stuff. And really, <laughs> and surely, surely people will see the merit in that. You decided to raise the bar and use the best quality ingredients possible and set a new standard in Thai cuisine. What were the challenges involved in that? Um, again, I, I think I have to go back and say, I don't think we were trying to set the bar or anything. We just wanted to um, use things that we actually wanted to use. And that involved not having, you know, using frozen imported seafood. We use um, only Australian prawns and only Australian line caught snapper. Um, we didn't want to go down the whole, you know, frozen fish roots or, you know, and, and we were, and then at the time we were already planning on starting our own farm and where that was going to be, I think initially my mum thought, well, we'll go up. There was a farm in Humpty Doo um, in the Northern Territory. Yeah, I know. And we calculated, well, Northern Territories, you know, it's a good seven hours or six and a half hours from Sydney. It's a bit far. Um, and all the ingredients at that time that we were sourcing from up there were being flown down, which didn't seem very sustainable to us I mean both financially and environmentally and we just happened to be holidaying um, with our family in Byron and I met up with one of my favorite growers um, actually two of them Kenrick and John Bacconi who we kind of kept asking them to grow more stuff for us because we knew that there was a truck that we could you know there was a, um, a trucks coming down anything further south then around Cairns, we're all coming down by truck. And so we'd gone to all, a lot of the farms up there and it was pretty dry. And then they had, you know, the problem with Darwin, Cairns and kind of far north Queensland, Northern Territory was they, when the season, it made sense because when the summer season rolled around for Sydney and New South Wales, they were under monsoon and, and couldn't grow anything. So, you know, that, that was, it's not very viable because... While Sydney, the, the thing with markets is if you're working with directly with farms, you've got to always buy from them. Otherwise, they move on to the next person, which is completely understandable. So for us to kind of be chasing the season and using different farms at different stages, um, again, wasn't viable. So when we were in Byron, we just noticed that the weather was always pretty great. It was pretty stable. There was... Um, a really viable, a good viable growing season, even during the winter, and um, even the summer. Like the summers, sometimes in certain areas are too hot to even get anything going. Um, but Byron seemed to be the sweet spot. So we kind of <laughs> our, our current neighbours, John Pacconi, who we were getting to grow things like the green peppercorns and things like that for us, pretty much disappointed next door. Is like I'm a one man band. I can't expand on what I'm doing. Uh, he didn't really – his market is predominantly the markets around Iron Bay and that's where he sells all his produce. So he wasn't really interested in in growing more for this, you know, stupid little girl from, from Sydney. So he pretty much said, just 
go next door and do it yourself. He, I think he was quite frustrated at me just asking him so many questions. So he was like, just go next door. And, uh, and funnily enough, yeah, we, we looked next door and and settled on the property not long after. What's what's it been like having that connection to the source and having to um, be on the farm? It's very different to being in, in restaurants. How, how has it changed your view on food? It's given me a much bigger picture of actually how the food system certainly works, for one. Like, I thought I, I knew a lot already, but um, – <laughs> and it's funny because you you know the people who don't know a lot when they say oh it must be so much more cost effective for you to grow this stuff yourself <laughs> and then that's when I say just nod and, and just now you know in the beginning <laughs> to get into very heated conversations about that but now I just I, yeah I think people don't have a, a real understanding of actually the cost of growing food. You have the grocer in Sydney as well um, as part of Boone uh, Cafe. What's it been like running that side of the business? Is it, what are the challenges involved in, in that sort of fresh food uh, market? I think, we're, first of all, we're really lucky in that we, we already had a connection with a lot of our other um, the Thai restaurant community and other restaurant community that exists in kind of those kind of central Sydney area. So we were already sourcing for ourselves directly and um, and then we were just trying to get scale. So in order to get scale, you can try to beat down the prices of the farmers. This is not a habit I try to get into anymore because I know how much farmers make. <laughs> and, and scale, a lot of the times, actually just has jack shit to do with it. <laughs> Sometimes it costs more to actually grow more <laughs> rather than less. Yeah, yeah. So now that's not a dispute I try to get into. So we like to, to understand the groceries business was a complete new kettle of fish because what it did give us was while we had a, a perceived understanding of what the consumer at a restaurant is like um, on a retail level, it really gave us an understanding of what people actually wanted and what people want is not sometimes what, I mean, the media has a huge part to play in this and so do farmers and growers and food educators and all that. But there's a huge disconnect. There really is about uh, what people say they want. People um, altruistically think that they should want, but that then actually, on the flip side, what they actually do want. Can you give us an idea of some of the things that you're growing on the farm that perhaps you didn't have access to previously that that um, have become part of what you do, what you serve in the restaurants as well? Yeah, so um, previously we had been getting guachai, which is sometimes referred to as wild ginger or well, um, Chinese keys. It's a rhizome um, and it's in the ginger family. It's quite pungent, but it's more of an arrow. It's rather than being spicy, it's actually a beautiful kind of woody, um, earthy top note which is great in curries and um, julienne finally we stir fry that with a chili and garlic paste um, for a dish that we call pacha pacha which we make with um, uh, we make it with sometimes we make it with chew fish but it's a dumpling it's like a fish ball 
and yeah it's delicious and so the base of it is grachai um chili ginger sorry chili garlic shallots which is then powdered and then stir fried with the grachai and finished with uh, magrut lime leaves and again magrut lime leaves is something that we put in very quickly when we realized that there was a shortage of magrut lime leaves because last year from Queensland we were not able to bring in any um, due to I think they had green blight and canker um, which is a disease which they wanted not to spread through New South Wales so no citrus was allowed in which drove up the price of magrut from $60 a kilo in, in actually sixty dollars is actually cheap because that's at the height of the season. It can actually grow go up to two hundred, but last year it went up to about two hundred and sixty dollars a kilo. It's more than truffles, right? And so when people say you know Thai food should be cheap, well maybe if you kind of are paying for I don't know your takeaway Thai joint that wants to just to use broccoli and you know does chicken broccoli stir fry or whatever it is, but it's not. The Thai food that Thai people know it as, you know, it's not. I hate to use the word authentic. It really that works. That word works me, but it's not the kind of Thai food that Thai people want to eat. Because <laughs> um, the Thai food that people Thai, like the Thai food that Thai people know, is all about the aromats and the spices, and chilies. Like even chilies are really expensive. So, for example, you know what. The, the moment I started growing chilies and picking it myself and knowing how long it takes to pick a kilogram and um, as a Thai restaurant when someone asks for chili you know a little sauce you know a little <laughs> people you know everyone just wants to give it freely obviously because they want to please the customer but you know I was just like every time I see that go out of the kitchen I think that's about three dollars there worth of chilies <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and chilies, I can tell you something. To grow chilies organically is really, really painful. <laughs> Why is that? So the stuff that um, you often see coming in from the Greater Sydney region, it has been farmed intensively in a way that really um, doesn't consider the soil and doesn't consider the health of the person eating it. It considers how optically how green, how um, unmarked the leaves of anything is. The fruits are sprayed pretty much because there are all sorts of things that want to eat your food <laughs> out there. So, like, for instance, if, if I'm sending vegetables, we're certified organic, if I'm sending vegetables down, like it comes down twice a week at the moment from the farm, the moment it gets into the restaurant, which is, within a 24-hour period, it gets processed straight away because, and in the beginning, this was a huge contention amongst my staff and myself because Thai people do not like wriggly things because Thai people do not like farming and they the reason why they do not like farming is because they consider it a, a low-class job because they don't like critters, they don't like critters, you know, like the height of luxury in Thailand is to be able to live in an apartment that has air conditioning, right? So if your ancestors are farmers, you know, you hide that fact because you don't want to be seen as poor. Um, you've escaped that. So 
can you imagine my staff have escaped all that some of them come from those backgrounds they hate anything that moves <laughs> literally <laughs> and my boxes of vegetables are full of things that move <laughs> so they have to process the, the herbs they have to process once there, i have to say there was even a, a live brown snake in one of our banana boxes Wow. <laughs> and and luckily the girl who opened that box has nerves of steel, comes from a farming background, so she got a she got, she got a cleaver and just whacked its head off. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not sure if you know about brown snakes, but they are fatal. Yes, that's uh, that's yeah. definitely a critter to avoid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so my staff know as soon as um, anything comes, they have to process it straight away because if they don't, if they get you know, things get left in the boxes overnight. They come back the next day, they open the box and half the vegetables are probably half eaten. <laughs> <laughs> comes, it comes with the territory of organic farming. But, you know, I, I still say, you know, I'd rather have that little bit of um, damage or I don't see it as damage anymore. I'm just I see it as feeding the other species on the planet. <laughs> yeah, then... Your journey with food um, from a from very young to now and the connection you have with actually growing produce as well as has led to a TV series. Uh, can you, can you tell us a little bit about water heart food and, and what it's about and how it began? Yes. Yeah, so water heart food started off um, as <laughs> in a completely different format. We were actually supposed to film the whole thing in Thailand Um and it was all about kind of me wanting to connect with farmers and producers and artisans and food artisans and chefs in Thailand about how to see the journey of how Thai food has evolved in Thailand because, yeah, and, uh, you know, being of the Thai, of the, the Thai diaspora here in Australia, we sometimes I feel like the food here is a snapshot of a time capsule of when my mother arrived and when, you know, whenever we have new menu items on, it's sometimes from the other Thai diaspora who remember food of their village and what that was like then, right? And it's evolved over time. And obviously, you know, I always say immigrant food is really like dining, say, in Thailand of, in the 80s or whatever it was that, that that person arrived and has been cooking all this time with making do with what they have in, in this new country that they've called home. But so the food in those countries, however, have moved on. And if you go to the markets in Thailand, you'll see all sorts of really weird, wonderful things like quail egg sushi or... Um, or, you know, kind of uh, fermented fish sushi and how things adapt by being kind of trends brought in but adapt to localised flavours, which is the same story for anywhere really, right? Um, so so the, the show was kind of going to be about that and I'd lined up some incredible talent including our own um, Tomo and he was we were going to showcase his new restaurant um, and we were going to film with some of his um, protégés who had gone on to, to do an, some incredible restaurants in Thailand as well. <sighs> now that wasn't to be in 2020. So we reformulated and um, because I have spent a lot of time 
growing and uh, producing for other restaurants, not just Chat Thai and our own restaurants, but um, for other people as well. We well, I, we decided to kind of draw on that experience and and turn flip really the the concept of the show to being about what's happening in Australia or actually what's happening what's happening in New South <laughs> New South Wales to be particular and and you know sadly we kind of really could only focus on the two regions at the moment where we did sydney and we did the northern rivers um but it turned out to be a great little show i think what was the experience like uh actually filming it did was it different to what you expected i didn't have any expectations i don't think coming into it except that i wanted to talk about food in the way that you know people who are in food actually talk about it and um, I didn't want to dumb down anything. I didn't want to kind of, I wanted to make it accessible and I wanted to make it appealing. However, I wanted to, you know, talk about the humble peanut and how like in the first episode with Pete, you know, how he's using peanuts as if it was a luxury item, which for to me and to him it is. Um, and, how you know, actually, um, the future really at the moment with all things considered is local and it really should focus on the local. Um, and I guess people who I've worked with have always been doing that for a long time, not just now. So really, um, I really want to highlight their amazing work and how they've adapted and changed um, and been really kind of trendsetters of the food, the, you know, the food scene in Australia from, way back when I was a kid and, and, and currently too. You mentioned how the pandemic affected the idea of the show and also the execution and it went in a different direction, but your uh, family has had restaurants for three decades. What, what sort of impact has this year had on all the different um, restaurants and offerings that you have? Well, for the first, <laughs> for the first time, I think everyone can say in, in unison, we Honestly, with the change, with the constant changing rules and regulations, we just had to make calls really as fast as we could, and you know, and everyone was bleeding money. Um, and I feel that if you know, I don't know if you didn't have a, a treasure, kind of a war chest to deal with it, that's when I think a lot of people really struggled. And we certainly, you know, already the economy pre-COVID had started to slow down already and we were feeling it right from the beginning when the first few cases in China um, were happening because it wasn't just the Chinese restaurants, it was all the restaurants in Chinatown and around Chinatown that were being avoided. And, you know, the demonization of ethnic restaurants being harbingers of disease or whatever really... Um, were really stereotyped. <laughs> However, you know, I understand people do things out of fear um, and we just had to kind of stay on course and just maintain what we have always done. So in a way we were lucky because we've always had a takeaway business. We just had to amp that up. Um, we had to shut down our dining, dining services and, you know, from a restaurant that used to close two or three a.m. in the morning on the weekends, um, you know, we were closing at 10. 
and for a while it was really touch and go for many of our locations and but having your eggs spread in many baskets helps because we have we had three of our um, chat ties outside of the Sydney uh, the CBD area and they and they were the ones that really kind of kept us afloat going yeah and that's why we decided at the time to look at another location because we didn't know and we still kind of don't know how long this is going to go on for so we found Neutral Bay and we were going to initially operate that only as a dark kitchen to service a lot of people who were not coming into the CBD to work anymore um, and were staying at home. Yeah. But we didn't actually. We found we found a really great location. It was perfect. Um, and we, we renoed the kitchen really um, quickly, opened that up, and then slowly as we opened it up, we were actually allowed dining so we slowly kind of um did a fit out for the dining area as well and now you know it's it's really actually doing really well has there been some changes that you've implemented that you'll take forward um out of this experience for the group i would love to say i just had a meeting about this i would love to say that we um, we'll stay on a shrunken menu because actually it's much more efficient <laughs> but i'm not sure <laughs> i'm not sure if you're um familiar with my restaurant at all but you know my mother <laughs> my wonderful mother has always said you I, she wants someone to come to our restaurant and find something to eat I'm like yes mom but it'll take them an hour to find what they <laughs> <laughs> because the menu is like and the older you are the harder you have you know, hard time reading this menu because it's just like the writing is so small. <laughs> I just, when, whenever I go to, you know, really great restaurants that I love, you know, like the spend, the minimum spend per head is, you know, two, three hundred dollars a head, but they've got one sheet on their menu and like, you know, their menu has five words on it or something. And then like I look at ours, it's literally like a bloody novel. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i would love to say that we will stay on a shrunken menu but however um we have to kind of stay true to what our backbone is which is we're a diplomatic restaurant you know it, whether you're a solo diner a group a family having a celebration like my mum always wanted to make sure that somebody could find something that they could eat on the menu <laughs> We're yeah. closing in on the end of 2020 and it's been a pretty tough year for most people on the planet. Um, what, what are you most looking forward to given the experiences that you've had this year um, for next year? Well, as the title of the show, Water Heart Food, um, the tenet of like a huge part of the culture is water heart, which in Thai... Um, the words for that is nam jai. literally translates to uh, a mindfulness and a compassion to everything and everyone around you. Um, and I would, I really would like for people to be a little bit more mindful around food, about food waste, about um, how much we are consuming and, and what that consumption means. Well, Pelissa, that's some great thoughts to think about and we've loved hearing your story on Deep in the Weeds. Um, thank you for joining us. Please keep in, keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. <laughs> Thanks very much, Huck. It was a pleasure. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. 
Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.